that's good, isn't it? It is good to be in the presence of God. I want to recognize a couple of people, and I want to do one thing before I jump into my message this morning. But I wanted to recognize Bill and Heather Deli. They just got married a few weeks ago, and I think you're back. Is this the first time back from your honeymoon or what? I don't even know what you did, but it's the first time back. So welcome. We're so excited for you guys. And Charlie Halley is sitting back here in his red sweater. He's trying to hide out, but you can't hide out, Charlie. Charlie, it's good to have you. We have, we've, we have negotiated with God and Mary Lou to get Charlie three times a year for the unforeseen, I mean, for the indefinite future. And I'm, I'm trying to get a fourth week. So if you could help me out um, after the service to convince Charlie that he needs to come back. I was thinking like dead of winter. Oh, actually, you are coming back in the dead of winter, so that's good. February. <laughs> All right. Hey, you know, when I was, when we were worshiping today, and of course, it's just been such a fun time the last few weeks as a family, and I think you feel it in the room. You feel this sense of, God, you're doing something unique among us, building community, building life, and love for one another. And I just look around, and I just get teary-eyed looking at you. But I'm not sure you do the same thing. So what I want you to do is I want you to turn your neck and I want you to look at each other and look at how beautiful this church is. Can you do that for a second? And if you look around and you see somebody that you just like to say you're beautiful, say you're beautiful to them. You are beautiful. And you know what? That's not, that's not just on the outside, but that's on the inside. I told, I, I tell my... I tell my, my girls this, uh, including my wife, uh, as much as I can remember, that you are beautiful, and they know that what I mean by that is, is that you're not just beautiful on the outside, which you are, but you, have a beautiful, you are a beautiful person. I used to tell that to my kids, and they hit me, so I'm trying to think of a new way to describe it. My, my kids don't want me to tell them that they're beautiful. You're handsome. But that doesn't work, does it, John? We'll figure that one out. But you are pretty awesome on the inside. Oh, thank you. Was that me or Jonathan? Yeah. Like, you're a rock star. Does that work? All right. Awesome. Well, we are uh, exiting an, an, an amazing series that we were a part of, uh, for, from my perspective, especially how we ended it with just an extravagant party before the Lord, uh, where we, a couple of weeks ago, we told testimonies of celebrating the the Lord's work in our lives. We had so many testimonies. We had to te- have testimonies during lunch. I still don't think that we got them all, got through all of them. And so we want to make sure that you you know that we want to hear your story. And so these services, as we go forward in the coming weeks, are going to be um, sprinkled with the stories of what God's doing in our lives. And so if you've got one and you didn't have a chance to share it a couple of weeks ago, please email us, text us, um, Facebook us, Twitter us. I'm just kidding. Um, however you want to connect with us to let us know that you're interested in sharing your story. We were able to eat, eat together, have a, share a baptism, um, experience with one another. And then last week, we got to just celebrate heaven. Wasn't that awesome? Uh, just listening to the word of God. I didn't do a lot of preaching. We just did a lot of listening to John tell the story of what heaven is like. And there's something just significant about us being in God's presence with his word and the Spirit of God touched people's lives last week, and so we're thankful. We're moving forward into another series for the next five weeks in the book of Ephesians. Uh, we're going to be looking not at the whole book of Ephesians. We couldn't do that in five weeks, couldn't do it justice. We're probably not going to do these two chapters justice 
um, uh, for the next five weeks, but we're going to be looking at Ephesians 4 through 5, verse 20. And we're going to be looking at it from the theme or the, the perspective of what does it look like to walk the walk, that we are called to be walking the walk with God. Um, there is a phrase when I was, a, when I was younger that, um, and I think it might still be around, which is, don't just talk the talk, but walk the walk. And we would then paraphrase and say, walk the talk. If you're going to say something, do what you say you're going to do. You know, it's, it's, a hard, it's a hard situation when we have people that we revere in our lives who don't walk the talk. They don't walk the walk. And the minute I say that and we kind of begin to search our mind, it's hard for us to probably immediately or pretty quickly think about people who have been important to us or who have carried some kind of a position of authority or influence, who have spoken one way but have lived another and, and, and in some measure or fashion, if we are all honest, we're all a little bit like that, aren't we? We all have a, a disposition, I think apart from Christ, there's probably not a person who's lived, who hasn't endeavored to say or speak or live a certain way that has maybe along the way failed to live up to what they desire. I remember one that really hit home to me was a pastor uh, a few years ago, who I really respected, I read his books, I went to his conference, I um, was so excited about the things that he was preaching and doing and the things that he was communicating that he was living, and as we have maybe often over the course of our lives, for those of us who are older, um, experienced, he fell, well, he had fallen into sin, but his, his sin was exposed. And... Um, and it was, it was exposed to the level of his influence, which his influence was national. And so the whole country found out about his sin. I remember being so discouraged. I had championed, championed his teachings, and, and I had so, so respected who he was. And to, then to see that a portion of his life, a large portion of his life, his family life was a mirage in the way that he was living his life. Now... Do I love him still? Absolutely, and we'll get in that today. And do I have hope and respect for where he is living his life today? Absolutely. But in that moment, thousands upon thousands of people were shocked and dismayed that the talk that he'd been talking was not being lived out in his life. Can I turn the tables for a second and talk about somebody, a hero of mine? Because isn't it awesome when we find somebody in our life, and especially if they live into their 70s or 80s or 90s, that uh, not only, and again, not perfect, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this man perfect in your eyes for a second, but he wasn't perfect, but he was pretty close. Because from my perspective, as his grandson, he walked the walk. My, my grandfather, Elmer Arnett Hanvey, died at 92, and, uh, of which we named our youngest son, Isaac Elmer, after him. He, when, we, when we told his kids, my mom being one of them, that we had not named him Elmer, he never really liked the name Elmer. And so they're like, oh, I'm not sure that he would like that you named him Elmer. But I named him Elmer, Isaac Elmer because I wanted to, to honor this man who had walked the walk that he talked about. He was a humble man. He was not a, he was not a, a charismatic man. He was simple. He was faithful. 
He served widows and orphans throughout his life. He served his mom into her 90s every day, taking her a meal and praying for her. And he did that with widows that um, he had apartments, uh, he had houses that he owned, and those many of them were occupied by widows. And he would visit, as the landlord, he would visit his widows and bring meals on wheels to them and love them. His wife got sick before him, and he, three times a day, was by her bedside feeding her and caring for her until her last day. He was patient. He was loving. He was gentle. He was generous with his resources. He was an honorable man. A man in such a way that when I think about, when I come to crossroads of decisions in my life, it is often that I will think of the teachings of Jesus, and right next to the teachings of Jesus, I'll think about Paul. And I'll think, you know what, what would Paul do? And part of what that inspiration is, is that he's in my blood. If my grandfather can act this way, then why can't I choose to walk the walk that God has called me to? We need heroes in our life. We need people who live the walk. And what I would like to do in these next five weeks is encourage you that as a church, you have, if you are in Christ, you have the ability to be heroes. You are called to be heroes to the people around you. You say, oh, God, Sean, I've already disqualified myself. I'm not that man you just talked about. Well, here's today. I'm truly believing that the man who fell from his, loft, his lofty position of authority a few years ago, still has the capacity to be a hero today, doesn't he? If he walks in forgiveness and humility and asks God to transform him, to make him into the man that God wants him to be, that he can rewrite a story. There might be things that he cannot make amends for in this life, but there is a story that he can write going forward. So when I say that there are heroes in this room, none of you are disqualified. None of you are disqualified from being Somebody to look up to, to be emulated, to be honored because of the way that you live your life. And God has called us to this life through the letter of Paul in Ephesians 4. Would you read with me in Ephesians 4? This is a longer passage of scripture this morning. But it has a theme that I want to carry through to its completion. Verses 1 through 17. I therefore... A prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk a life in the manner worthy of your calling or of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, 
to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, children who are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Walking the walk. In the, in the course of this, this five-week series, we're going to talk about walking in unity today, but in the coming weeks, we're going to talk about walking in truth, walking in love, walking in the light, walking uh, in his wisdom. What does it look like to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you've received from the Lord Jesus, as Paul talks about in Ephesians 4, verse 1? Well, let's talk today what it looks like from that perspective and looking at this walk of unity that he calls us to. Before we jump into the passage of Scripture fully, I want to just give you a review of Ephesians because we're not going through the whole book, so you need to kind of know what came from 1 to 3 to know what sets up 4. 1 to 3 is... Uh, well, first of all, the, Paul is, the letter is written by Paul. Most scholars agree that it's written by, by Paul. He was in prison in Rome. He was actually um, uh, release, uh, sending back a, uh, a fellow brother of his, Onesi, Onesi, uh, <laughs> yeah, say that for me, thank you, who was, a, who was a slave and who had come to know Christ and who Paul was writing uh, to, to that church, to Philemon, or writing to Philemon to say, hey, I want to encourage you to release this brother. He's a brother in the Lord. Don't let him be a slave anymore. Don't, don't, don't demand he's a slave anymore, but let him walk with you as a brother in Christ. So he's sending him back uh, with a fellow brother in the Lord. But he's also writing a letter to the church, in Col- the, 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 the Colossians. And he's writing this letter uh, that we read in Ephesians. So we got the letter of Colossians, but we also had this letter of, to the Ephesians that most scholars think is a regional letter, that it wasn't just to the church of Ephesus. But as this duo went back, they were stopping along the way to the, 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 the various churches that Paul had established, communicating the teachings of this letter to them. And what is this message in this letter? The letter is a celebration of the accomplishment of Christ and his work in individuals, but in the church. That they have been and we have been reconciled to God through Christ. Set free from the old man and renewed into being a new person in the Lord Jesus Christ. Filled with who Christ is and then demonstrating that love to one another. Chapters 1 through 3 often are are referred to as the theology of the letter. And chapters 4 through 7, the application. How do we live this revelation of this new life in Christ in a way that gives glory to God, not just individually, but primarily in this letter as a church? Western Americans, this series is about how we as the church walk in unity, love, truth. Light, wisdom. The scripture in Ephesians just gives such a glorious, majestic vision of the church. Our new identity, which every saint receives in Jesus, 
is the basis for the behavior that he's calling us to in the chapters that follow. You're going to read some scripture this, this five weeks that is going to be convicting. Every time I read four or five, verse chapters four and five, I'm like, Lord God, help me to live in the way that you're illuminating scripture here to me. But also, God, praise you that I can live this way. That there's grace. Chapters one through three talk about this grace, this power from God that dwells within us to be able to live out the life that he's called us to. We have been gloriously saved with Christ in freedom, holy and blameless. The letter to the Colossians has over a third of the letter of Colossians is almost mirrored or or seen in Ephesians. So these two letters are very similar because they're going at the same time to similar people. Listen to Colossians 1 verses 21 about this walk with God, this oneness with God that we receive. Uh, from Jesus. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind toward doing evil deeds. You were alienated from God. You were hostile in your mind. You were doing evil deeds. But he is now reconciled in his body of the flesh of flesh by his death. This is Jesus. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him and before God. Jesus has taken an alienated, hostile, evil person. I'm not going to have you raise your hands. But I was one of those. And Jesus reconciled me to God. By his grace and mercy. And for those of us who are in Christ, whether you raised your hand or not, you were one of those too. And by the grace of God, we would remain people like that without his help and his mercy. It's this calling that sets the standard. For our conduct. So we have unity with God through the calling that He has given us. And He's asked us to walk in a manner worthy of His calling. A high calling demands high conduct, doesn't it? Right? We expect that somebody who has a high calling should walk within the integrity of that calling. Let's talk, let's let's say that if, for instance, as an example, the President of the United States. We expect that when we elect the President of the United States, that he, as leader of 400 million people, is that how many people we have in America today? 300 million? Yeah, thank you, Mary. She's my statistics today. (laughs) Of a large country, we expect that this man or woman who leads a country is going to lead this country with integrity. That we can say, I will follow you as you lead out. Oh, Commander-in-Chief. And so then if our presidents fail us, and we've had numerous presidents throughout the centuries who for one way or another have fallen short of that high calling within the integrity or practice of their lives, we're confused, disappointed, discouraged. Our up is turned, our down is up, our up is down. I remember being at a car wash under the presidency of President Clinton Right after the Monica Lewinsky scandals, and whether, no matter, I'm not pronouncing any opinion or judgment on what you think happened with the president, but there was a mark on his presidency at that time, and there was lots of chatter on the streets about what did or did not happen, and I was at a car wash with my youngest daughters, Molly and Annie, and there was a man next to me with his radio blasting, and it was not 
proper language. You And it was like a hundred decibels, and my girls are going, what's that, Daddy? Never heard. What does this mean? I'm like, no. So I politely walk around the bay and I say, excuse me, sir. I might not have been that nice. I might, I might not have been more fleshly than that. But I, I said, could you please turn down your radio? Because I've got two young kids here that I really don't want them to listen to this music. Probably, I, I probably should have evaluated the person I was talking to before I said it. Because I think he was kneeling and he stood up. He was about 14 feet taller than me. <laughs> And he said, are you talking to me? And I said, I'm not sure if I am. Is there somebody else around here? (laughs) And he said to me, he said, it was the most bizarre response I've ever heard. I thought he was going to hit me. There was all kinds of different responses he said, but his response was, I can play this music if I want to, if President Clinton can do what he just did. I don't have time to talk to you about that. Yes, sir, but could you just still please turn it down? And I left. What an interesting correlation, but the correlation was this. The president did this, therefore that is the new morality on the streets. We expect today that our police officers will protect people instead of abuse their power. It's a big thing going on. Why do we expect that? Because of the calling that they've received, we instill with them a trust that they will honor that place of calling. My mom's pastor one one day said, uh, shared a message about his own journey with his father. He grew up on a farm, and um, he he was the oldest son. And as you know, in in farming country, oftentimes the father is thinking that his oldest son or his kids are going to take over the farm. And the kids grow up in that kind of pressure of, if they don't feel like they're farmers, what do I do? Oftentimes people become farmers just because of that pressure, even though they don't desire to be farmers. But, but my mom's pastor made the decision um, to talk to his dad. And one day he walked up to him and he said, Dad, I, I, I know how important it is for me to take over this farm. And he was trembling and he was, he was afraid of what he was about to say. But he said, Dad, I can't do it. I feel like that God has called me to be a preacher. And his father looked at him and he said, son, if God calls you to do something, it's the most important thing you can do. And if he's called you to be a preacher, don't stoop to be the president. We all have a calling that is that high in Christ. Every single one of us have a high calling as ambassadors, the scripture says, of the Lord Jesus Christ I want to let you know that some of you are underdressed this morning, all of us, because there is no more of a royal room or a place in all of the universe than this room today, because as a church, you stand here or sit here adorned with a new identity in Christ. You are royalty. You have a high calling. You are not some... some a measly, forgotten, unobserved, not worth anything person in the back corner of this room. But in God's eyes, every single one of you, and you don't have to look around to compare because God is not comparing you with anybody in this room. He's looking right at you and He says, you are a prince of mine. You are a princess of mine. 
and you wear the clothes of authority. We have high callings, and therefore we have a high, high ideal to aspire to. Do we, do, we, do we walk in condemnation when we fail? No, we just ask for forgiveness or help. Do we think of ourselves more highly than we ought when something great or wonderful happens through our life? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, Paul goes on in verse 2 to say this, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. How do we walk in unity, in our high calling, in our royal position, in our privileged uh, acknowledgement of who we are in the church, How do we walk in unity? In humility. In patience. In kindness. In love. Paul is saying here that in order for us to walk in unity, we walk in unity with God. We just talked about that. But we walk in unity through the attitude that is befitting of a follower of Jesus, meaning that we walk the way that Christ walked. What I want you to get a picture in your mind of throughout this whole series, and it's the reason I use the word walk instead of live. Many of your translations, if you're reading from your Bibles, use the word live um, as the illustration. But really in the Greek, that word in the Greek is really describing a picture of walking with God. And I love that picture, and it's why I chose the ASV to, 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 to work out of in this passage of Scripture and in through this series, because I want this image of, the, of walking with God to be Firmly in your mind. We're going to throw it up on the screen often. You are walking with God. So that when we say, when I say, or the scripture says, this is the manner to which you should walk, you go, okay, I can't do it by myself. Jesus, can you do this? Jesus, are you with me? Jesus, are you in me? Jesus, can we do this? And you'll get hope and inspiration for what God is wanting to do to lead you forth, maybe in a way of living that you have not ever lived before. We are not better than those who are lost who don't know Christ, are we? We're not better. We're not better people. We're only redeemed people. We're only forgiven people. Now, we have a different identity. And if people choose not to receive Jesus, they're not royalty. The royalty of God are those who accept his love and his faith and become sons and daughters of Christ. But we did not earn that. He didn't look at my bank account and my moral score and go, well, you know what? Sean is great. I want him on my team. He didn't go through and select all the best people. As a matter of fact, Paul pretty much makes it clear that we were pretty needy of God's grace when he picks us. No, we're not better than the lost, but even more important for us to hear in the church is that we're not better than the person who sits next to us or across the room. Those who sin against us, God tells us to forgive. Those who fail us, God tells us to restore. Those who abandon us, God calls us to persevere and to believe for reconciliation. Sometimes it's incredibly hard. But that's the call of God. That's the direction that he aims us. We are new in Christ, therefore we put on a new nature. We are as Christ is, who though he was in the form of God, 
did not count equality with God to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, he came to us. What's the opposite attitude of what we just read in Ephesians? It's pride, it's impatience, it's pushiness, it's intolerance. These are evidence of the fact that we ourselves think that we are better than others. That's why in Proverbs it says, the poor plead for mercy, but the rich answer with insults. How can the poor plead for mercy and the rich answer with insults? Because the poor realize their dependence on man, and the rich oftentimes don't think they need anybody. That's not true for all wealthy people, and it's not true for all poor people. It's really a It's a a picture of our understanding of where we should position ourselves before Christ. Let's be reminded that these attitudes are not regarded as virtues by the world, are they? But they're regarded as weaknesses. So when you try to put on patience and kindness and love and forgiveness, the world is teaching you a different set of standards, isn't it? The world does not offer seminars on humility, but on self-esteem. The world does not teach gentleness, but, teach, but, but does give instruction on assertiveness. The attitude which Paul proposes here is one that the world opposes. So we've got to remember that as we're walking in a different direction. We are walking under the power of God, but we're not walking in the acknowledgement oftentimes of the world. And so therefore, we don't listen to the opinions of the world when we shape our character but we listen to the attitude of Christ and his teachings in the word, and we put on those attitudes. There's one body, verse 4 through 6, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. Do you notice a similar word in this passage of Scripture? Oftentimes in writings, when there's a word said over and over again, it's used for emphasis. Thank you, class. Always wanted to be a professor. That's my take. Good job. Great. Finish. One is used seven times in these three verses. Paul is stressing oneness. The oneness of us coming together in a common faith, in a common journey. In 12 times in this larger passage of Scripture, some concept of unity, the body, oneness is communicated. The truth about who we are, we are one body. In the body of Christ, if we are, um, no matter where we come from, if we are in Jesus, we are one. Isn't that awesome? Isn't it awesome to look around this room with all these flags that represent the people in this church or most of the people in this church? And we can say, no matter where we come from, what nation, what experience, what background, what economic situation, what educational background, wherever we come from, if we are united in Christ, in faith, in baptism, in purpose, we are one with one another. The way that he calls it in this passage of scripture is that we become the body of Christ. And later on in the service, we are going to take communion together to demonstrate that oneness with one another. One body, one in the spirit, one hope, the same hope of our calling in Christ Jesus, the blessings that come from the Lord. The Lord, one Lord, there's no other, there's no other Lord. Every knee will bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. I say that with all humility, but I say it with confidence because that is what God declares through his Bible, through his word to us. Jesus is the Lord and Savior. One common faith, one baptism, and as a result, we have one God and Father in heaven. Amen.
We also see in verses 7 through 16, it goes on to demonstrate that what unity looks like is not just being one with God and, and having uh, an attitude or a character that reflects who Christ is, but it also means that um, we see, uh, uh, excuse me, I just lost my thoughts. Um, uh, yeah, that's what I was going to say. For, verses 1 through 6 talk about what we have in common. Verses 7 through 16 show us what our diversity is. So in our unity of diversity, of our different gifts, we are one in the Lord. When you look at Genesis 1 and you see the creation of man and woman, you see a picture of what God is trying to do in regards to diversity. When he created two that are very different, he could have created two Adams. He could have created two Eves. He could have created a uniformed, powerful, symmetrical, all-alike army. Of people, but he created diversity of sex, diversity of color, diversity of expression, diversity of giftings to reflect the glory of the diversity of heaven that's already been existing in the Trinity and to reflect the glory of his ability to bring us together as one. Isn't that awesome? So the more diverse we are, I think, which is why I love our church the more we have an opportunity to glorify God. It's a more splendid diamond. It's got more edges. It's got more aspects that bring glory because we are walking together. But let me tell you, how incredibly ugly is it if we get all of these diverse people together and we're not walking in unity? To the degree degree that we can be glorious in reflecting Christ in our diversity is to the degree that we can create a cacophony of horror and division and ugliness if we don't come together in unity. We've seen this throughout history, haven't we? The ability for different peoples to come together, but the pride and the arrogance and the judgment of man not only not allowing them to come together in unity, but creating a place of fear and hatred and death because of a difference because of the difference of a shape of a nose. Isn't that ugly? Isn't that so antithesis to who Christ is being reflected of in this passage of Scripture? So we come together in a diversity of gifts. By the way, Billy Graham, who is still with us, but maybe for a lot longer, he's amazingly living long, but... I'm so thankful for Billy, another hero of mine, of walking in integrity of faith, and his, his wife, Ruth. But she said of their marriage, she said, someone asked her, do you, and Billy ever, do you and Billy ever disagree? And she said, well, good heavens. If we always agreed, then there wouldn't be a need for one of us. If we, unity doesn't mean that we're always agreeing, does it? It means we're always loving. Can I say that again? Agreeing, unity does not mean that we are always in agreement with one another. As a matter of fact, some of the healthiest marriages, Billy and Ruth being one of them, are able to share their differences in a place of love that promotes unity, that promotes change, that produces a better marriage or a better relationship or a better community. So that doesn't mean that we shut our mouths up. It actually means, as this scripture says, that we release who we are in an attitude of love and humility and grace.
These gifts, they're from Christ. The scripture says here in this text. They are from a Christ who descended, it says, and ascended. What is that? What is that? It's so confusing to know that passage of scripture, isn't it? I believe what, what's happening there is it's giving us a picture of who Christ is. We just read about him in Philippians 2. He came, he, it, Philippians 2 said that he emptied himself from heaven. He descended from heaven to earth, became like us. God became like a man. That's pretty, a pretty far descent. And not only did he descend to earth, but he, he defeated hell. So he went to the very bottom for us so that he could ascend in his glory and his victory. And behind him are all of us going, woo! And as he's ascending in his authority and we put our faith and trust in him, we're part of him. He's showering us with gifts. He's blessing us through one another. That's what I think. Heaven, Jesus defeated hell so that we could have heaven. And how did he do that? He did it by humbling himself. Therefore, when we embody the gifts of the Spirit of God in the context of this passage of Scripture, we receive those gifts um, because they're given from God and they're for us, and that means they're good. And then we operate in those gifts in humility, by serving, by caring for other people, by decreasing, as John the Baptist said, so that Jesus might increase. See, that's what Jesus did. He decreased so that who could increase? Thank you, Jesus. So these equipping gifts are meant to equip us, to strengthen us. Verse 11, these equipping offices of apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. What are they called to do? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. This is how, so, so an apostle would say to us, this is how we plant churches. And then he would say, so he, he's, he's called or she is called to equip and to encourage, to equip and encourage. This is how we start churches. We can do it. And people rally around the apostle and go, yeah, we can do it. The evangelist comes up and says, this is how we preach the gospel and lead people to Jesus. We can do it. We can do it. This is how we receive the word of God and communicate it clearly for the change of people's lives. The prophet leads us out and then he says, you can do it. We can do it. This is how you love and equip and encourage and strengthen the body of Christ and serve them and teach them. Teachers and pastors are doing that and equipping us and then we go, we can do it. Because Those who are gifted in that apostolic or that that governmental leadership are serving and training and helping us to become the people that God has called us to be. One of Charlie's championing verses, he's probably just in his seat going, I want to teach this passage of scripture, was to remind us as a church that we have the ability not just to be doers, but to be equippers of people around us. To help them. And it's, it's not just these super people. Because they're not super people. They're servants. That's what God's called them to be. But it's these servants helping other people be servants. in the giftings that God has called them to be. And then those servants passing it on. And it passes on forever. The works of God to build up and strengthen. To encourage. To promote. It says what? Unity and maturity. This was the desire of Paul. This is the desire of of these leaders. It's the desire of our local leaders. As elders in this movement, we are, we are striving to create an equipping environment so that you can learn 
the excitement about planning churches. We've got a church planning meeting on November 13th, Friday night at Mark Buckner's house. If you ever had a desire to plant another church, if you thought to yourself, I love this church, but I could see a church like this planted somewhere else, come on. You mean I can be invited? Every one of you can come. Just call ahead so we have enough food. We want to equip people to be church planners. We want to equip people to be evangelists. We want to equip people to be prophetic. We want to equip people to be pastors and teachers so that you can be built up and so that we can advance the kingdom of God. But I do think in this passage of Scripture, there's one thing that we need to note, and it says, for the body of Christ. And I believe that this passage of Scripture is not just talking about the river, but that God has given people, leaders, you, the opportunity to not only help serve and love this body, but to equip the body of Christ. And I feel like as um, a leader in the city, that that's one of the calls he has for me, is to help our local churches thrive. Because God's given me an apostolic calling to see churches planted. He's given me an evangelistic calling to see people come to know Jesus. And I want to see people equipped in those giftings, from my gifting, to see them built up in our local churches within our movement, but also to be a part of a prayer summit team that brings pastors together to pray together for the unity of the body in the the city of Boston and throughout, that promotes the doctrine of the Word of God so that we're walking in clarity according to the truths of Scripture. It's a part of my calling, not just to serve you, but to serve other people. So that the church can be built up. Because why? Because the river church is not, we're not in some kind of standing in heaven. And we, you know, it's not like God's grading church. He says, you know, river church is 11 to 5 this week. But they're going head to head with High Rock. And I don't know who's going to win. Sure hope those guys really act godly this week. It's going to be a close call. But they got a couple of really righteous people on the High Rock side. It's going to be too close. to tell. No. God's saying, High Rock, Park Street... Boston Chinese Evangelical Church, whoever calls on the name of Jesus and promotes the 